Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Kyle Mowry. Kyle is a heck of a guy. I've known him now for, I think it's like three years. The days are long, the years are quick. You know, he's just, he's a great guy. I think he does great work. I'm really grateful for our friendship, and I'm grateful that uh, I'm in the group of people that he speaks with. So... I think as far as the depths of the ideas go, if you want to hear how deep he goes on ideas, check out his podcast with Andrew Walker at Yet Another Value Podcast. They did one on Orion Engineered Carbons. We talk about Orion. I am long Orion, so I don't think I did the best job at pushing back on this one. Shout out to my main homie, Matthew Passy, for the production on the podcast. I listened and noticed... uh, He's got some editing tips or tricks for audio, and they have carried those over to video nicely, and I'm happy with the way that it sounded. Slight deviation in the conversation around 26 minutes. Talked about Chicago a little bit to the extent it ruined the flow. My apologies. Consequence of the format. Something that I think a lot of the smaller cap professional people that listen to this podcast may like about this episode, check out, we talk about Kyle's entity Covest Select, and it comes up around 48 minutes into the conversation. So however long this intro is, you know, add that to the 48 minutes and you will hear about Covest Select. I think it's a very cool product that Kyle uh, has created. Disclaimers. This discussion expresses Grizzly Rock's research opinions. You should assume that as of the publication date of this podcast, one or more clients of Grizzly Rock Capital and Covest Select has a long position in the stock discussed and stands to benefit if its share price increases. Following publication of this podcast, Grizzly Rock intends to continue transacting in the securities of the company covered herein and may be long, short, or neutral at any time hereafter. Opinions are based upon interpretation of certain facts and observations, all of which are based upon publicly available information. As for my disclaimer... As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. With that out of the way, here's the pod. Ladies and gentlemen, Kyle Mowry, a guy who, what was, I think it was like seven years ago, I reached out to somebody and I said, who should I meet in Chicago? And they said, Kyle Mowry is a guy that you need to know. And, uh, I think it only took us like four years after that to meet each other, and here we are. So uh, thank there you for coming are. on. Yeah, and you're no longer in Chicago, which is nice for you in January. Yes, in January, but right now it's a sad thing. It's pretty nice in uh, September, yeah. I was I was just up there, man. It was, it was super nice. I hung out with some college yeah. friends. Uh, it was a good time. So, uh, you know, we were talking offline before we came on, and I, I'd just like to pick your brain on some macro stuff, which is bound to be wrong first. Uh, have you ever seen sort of a macro backdrop like this? The, the thing that we were specifically talking about was uh, I got a bid for the tile in my house, and uh, I'm convinced that I should have learned to lay tile a little bit earlier. And uh, like labor is so tight, and yet everything that we're looking at uh, seems to scream global recession. Rates are going up. You know, how do you kind of contextualize you know, what we're looking at from an economic standpoint, you've been in the business for what, over a decade. So how does this line up to what you've seen in the past? Yeah, I, I think 
other than 08, which was its own thing, years and decades really in the making that I was so young at the time I was investing professionally, but, but I wasn't, I didn't really grasp it. I didn't, I didn't have the background to grasp it. This is probably the hardest macro that I've seen because there's a lot of things that are bullish and there's a lot of things that are bearish and you got supply chains all kind of still trying to normalize and you got nationalism and an onshoring of, of production and yeah, you got a labor shortage, right? And like we're, like you're mentioning with housing and contracting and, I mean, you know, look at the percentage of electricians and, and folks that are in the trades that are in their 50s. And, you know, where are they going to go in, uh, you know, 10 years? They're probably not going to be, you know, laying, laying tile, right? So it might be you and I laying that tile in, uh, in your new house. I'll tell you what. I mean, with the rates that they're charging, that would be a, a nice, uh, I, I would get a nice raise by doing that. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, our kids kids will be a little bit older in a couple of years, right? I could put them to work. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, a little child labor. That would be nice, uh, nice yeah. operating yeah. leverage in my business. Yeah, yeah. What did 08 teach you uh, about investing? One of the things that you and I have previously discussed is you said that, um, I forget exactly how you said it, but it was something about like, I guess my paraphrasing would be, you can wait to take the risk later until you're on the other side. Um, but I'm curious to just hear you riff on what you learned in 08 and, uh, how that felt to the extent you remember it. Yeah. So I started, I graduated college in 05, but, uh, I went to work at a, a hedge fund of funds. Um, but my first real investing job, uh, began in summer of 07. And, and, uh, the week that I started, there was front page article in the wall street journal explaining what a pick toggle bond was. Turns out that was the last chopper out of Vietnam, proverbially, and um, and it was a re- it was a really really interesting uh, eighteen twenty four months thereafter. Very much different than now. This is nothing like 08. 08 was systemic in such a way that it was it was how close we actually got to the precipice has been well covered. But but it was you could feel it. I mean, you could feel it. I mean, I remember talking to my wife about, okay, there might not be a financial industry, you know, what, what are we going to do? Right. And we were in our mid twenties. So yeah, it, um, it was, it was pretty wild. What is a pick toggle bond for uh, those at home? Oh, for the non-credit nerds payment in kind, uh, when they can pay you more bonds, it's kind of like, you know, Dumb and Dumber when he says, you know, he's giving out all those IOUs, right? That's basically <laughs> It's what as it good is. as money. That's effectively a pick tug, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so. so you started in mezzanine debt, right? Yeah, I started in high yield, yeah, before business school. You know, what happened was, look, I'm, I'm, the, I'm a value guy. I know that uh, wasn't popular the last decade. Maybe now it's uh, going to become back uh, into, into prominence, but, you know, Buffett, Munger, Seth Klarman, these are sort of the folks that, that you know, kind of formed my sort of thinking broadly. Um, but, you know, credit and small cap, small cap equities, which, which is what I do now, very similar. You're studying business, you're studying free cash flow, right? And, um, and you just, you have, uh, you're higher up in the stack. So I, I got my first job uh, in, in credit on purpose to, to really kind of get going in, in that area. And then, I, I transitioned to equities because I got tired of getting uh, all the all the I do all this work buy you know buy something in ninety five and it would go away at par 
uh, and I have to go do all the work over again. I said, well, wait, hang on. It's basically the same as small cap equities. Let's go see if we can make 50, 100 uh, or more percent, right? So I, I ended up transitioning and now I work almost predominantly in, uh, in small cap equities. What, when you say uh, small cap equities, how would you define that? Yeah, so I'm trying to think of a way that won't get me busted by the authorities of describing it. I, you know, one to three billion is sort of a sweet spot. I think from a market cap perspective, they're real companies. They're not, you know, beholden to one personality or a couple different sales folks or, or one, you know, uh, set of uh, set of folks operating the business. They're they're real companies, but they're not companies that have, you know. 20 sell side analysts and hundreds of, of uh, hundreds of buy side analysts. And, and you can still get a fundamental edge by doing public publicly available work, going to conferences, not financial conferences, not, not like industry conferences, like go to conferences where you're the only person there who's uh, who works in an investing role, right? It's public. You buy a ticket, you go and you learn, you learn the industry, you learn, you know, there's a lot of things that can be picked up about businesses and industries that that's public, but, um, you know, assemble it through mosaic theory. There's one for, for you with your fancy CFA. Yeah, that's right. That's, and, that's what uh, I learned. That's basically it. Mosaic theory. Yeah. You're, you're you fine. If you do mosaic theory, you're fine. It works in small caps. Yeah. Why not go even smaller? They're not real businesses, right? Like I've done micro caps. I've never really done nano caps. I think you want to be, Personally, if I'm investing in small companies, you're effectively investing in people. And if you're investing in people, just do it privately, right? Like, because with a micro cap, there's always, you know, you get in and then all of a sudden somebody wants to blow out. And the next thing you know, you're down 30%. You just made the investment. Nothing has changed. It can be very frustrating. Or, you know, a, C a CEO gets a you know, cult of personality and all of a sudden, you know, they leave or they they make a poor acquisition and there's no board oversight. Although I say that small caps don't exactly have wonderful corporate governance either, but the range is a lot broader in small caps and you can find you can find very good managers um, with very good corporate governance in a way that micro caps, you know, I, you go in and, and you see they, they seem so cheap and then you get a bit on hand a couple of times and I... I kind of took my ball and, and went back to small caps, right? Just go to go to bigger companies, more real companies. And that, and that's worked well for us Yeah, uh, over, over the years. No, well, that's uh, I was talking to a, a fairly well-known small cap guy and he said the same thing. He was like, look, I, if I were you, I would not focus on the really small stuff. I would probably start at a billion. And I think that that's a pretty smart idea. So, uh, you know, I have, I have seen some of the work you've done and, I think it would be helpful to understand the level of due diligence that you do putting together a thesis because the uh the decks that you send are you know I don't I don't see that level of of due diligence many places so I'd just be curious to hear you riff on what due diligence looks like to you and uh you know at what point do you know you know for lack of a better question because you put so much work in how how do you know like okay now I've gotten over the line versus you know, that incremental piece of information where you're kind of wasting your time from a decision-making standpoint. The best ideas are the ideas that as you peel back the onion, you it just gets better and better and better. And you can't even believe that the market is pricing it where it is. 
and it's so rare. But positive intermittent reinforcement is like one of the, you know, most, I mean, the dopamine hit is incredible, right? And when you do it for a living, you spend a lot of time looking at ideas that are good ideas, right? There's, yeah, you can make money on good ideas. But when you find those very special ideas and you, and you unwrap it and you get into the diligence and you realize you can make a ton of money, a really significant return, that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. And that's why we keep doing it. And then in terms of the depth, thank you for your comments. I think we do high quality work. I think there's a lot of people in the small cap world that do really high quality work. I think the key for us is like, why can, why can we do 125 page decks? Because we're only focused on things that are significantly mispriced and misunderstood, right? I, I'm not trying to make 25% on an equity, right? I'm trying to make 50 to 100. And when you're doing that, there's just so many things that are you know, the market's fairly efficient, right? There's a lot of smart people out there investing in small caps. So, you know, it's rare when something is wildly inefficient, but when you find it, you can just go in a hole for a month or as a team, you know, divide and conquer and do it in two or three weeks. And you can come out with something that could pay, you know, benefits for your investors for years, right? And 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 that's and that's really when we kind of look back and I want to be very careful not to talk about, we run a private fund, so I can't talk too much about it. But uh, when I look back at the things that have gone well, it, it in summation, it, it's these really, it's these, the best ideas that really do drive everything going forward. Can we talk about a previous uh, idea that you had, or is that like not allowed at all? Yeah, we can. Because um, I'd be can, curious uh, to hear you riff on Darling and what you saw and sure. when you saw it and what the market was missing. Yeah, sure. Okay. You mind like kind of describing the setup there? And because I actually, I banked Darling. Well, I didn't bank. I wasn't the banker, but I, I yeah. helped underwrite yeah. the credit when it was kind of a, you know, just a sleepy rendering business for lack of a better term. Yeah. Right. And like, what did you see that the market was missing and kind of when did you see it? Yeah. So Darling Ingredients, a large rendering business, uh, a necessary business, but a sort of a not a very sexy business. And, you know, one of the tools in our toolkit as value investors is, is margin reversion. Um, and that can work on the long side, that can work on the short side. So in 2015, 2016, broader commodity prices, protein commodity prices were on a downswing. So Darling missed, it got punished by investors. They had made some poor capital allocation decisions in terms of uh, growth. They had paid a high multiple for a couple of businesses. Now they look good, like good acquisitions and strategically they made sense. The prices they paid were just far too high, high multiples on, on high, uh, high cycle margins. And then when, when you miss and you're levered and the kind of the economy is looking a little uh, questionable, then you get punished. And, and that you can, uh, for, for a fundamental small cap fo uh, focused person, you, know, you can look out and say, okay, there's a pretty reasonable chance to make 50% over two years. And that might be, you know, a, a good position, not a great position, but a good position, right? That, that'd be a good return. I think most people would take that um, in, a, in a base case with not too much risk. So uh, we, we got involved, started really understanding it, spent a lot of time. And one of the things that they had been working on to diversify, it's, it's effectively proteins and fats or, or, or what the value is other than the waste management aspect for protein production, i.e. Uh, slaughterhouses, right? Uh, just to call a spade a spade. But on that protein and fat side, they were looking at ways to, to hedge 
and mitigate that cyclical exposure. And so they, they were talking about this thing called renewable diesel. And when we made the investment, it was part of the thesis, sure, but it was uh, a growing market and it wasn't a market that was that was saturated. Um, fast forward a couple years um, to 2019, it's our largest position. Renewable diesel is is something that was on everyone's mind. People understand what it is now. Renewable diesel is is chemically identical to fossil based diesel. It's being used in, in trucks in California, cars in the EU, and there's a whole bunch of statutes and reasons why that's going to be continually growing in a secular manner. But in 2019, at a Chicago based conference, Invest for Kids, you know, we presented. The idea at 19 a share, and uh, we're no longer involved, but uh, I think it's at about 70 a share. So why why, why were we right? And what was the magnitude of, of, of being right? Was the, the maturation of the renewable diesel market and going from something that was cute and a hedge to the fats to being the core driver of the business? It's, it has to do with sustainability, decarbonization of the industrial and energy ecosystem, and Darling was uh, vertically integrated in terms of the, the feedstocks, the fats that went into the, the process. It's called lipid hydrogenation. I won't, I won't bore you with the details, but it's just a fancy way to make fuel that goes into any truck in California out of, out of what, uh, a non-fossil source. And so it was vertically integrated. They were leading out and growing. They had a, a joint venture with Valero Energy called Diamond Green Diesel. They were expanding those plants in Louisiana. Now they're also expanded in Texas. So it's 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 a wonderful business now. And the business has really escaped from being a, a commodity, a cyclical margin commodity business to something that has these secularly growing in markets. And that's how that's how stock re-rates from 19 to 70 is something changes in a big way. And they have the 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 right unit economics the right products and, and services to meet that growing demand and and to make a tremendous amount of cash, which which Darling does today. So when you when you're talking about that, it, it sounds as though this is an idea that was a, a bit of a margin reversion play uh, in the penalty box, had a nascent sort of business line that was growing underneath and and was maybe uh, the free option for lack of a better term, but it wasn't necessarily core to your initial thesis. Is that fair? It is fair, but we never thought it could be a multi-bagger. The, the base case initially was we could make 50% as margins come back over year or two, right? But the best investments are not, not always uh, require serendipity, but the best investments are when you pay a low multiple for something that is growing and the market doesn't recognize that it's growing. And it happens in small caps all the time, Right. For example, right now there's a business called Orion Engineered Carbons that everyone perceives as a, as a cyclical uh, commodity industrial. That's not the case. We think they're going to grow their core business in into 23 and in 24 before a whole host of reasons. That business is trading at 5.2 times. And by the way, at analysts, 5.2 times they what? Talk, uh, sorry, EBITDA. On our numbers for next year, it's it's a and this is not investing advice. Please read all the disclaimers on this. On uh, we'll read. I'll, I'll read podcast. them before the pod. Okay, good. Yeah. So Ryan's trading at five point two times uh, this year's EBITDA. We think it grows next year and the year after. We think the free cash flow to owners owners earnings is going to be in the mid twenties on a percent 
20% return. And they said this publicly at Analyst Day. They said, we're going to earn, you know, two thirds of our market cap between 2023 and 2025. So it's massively transformational. And you're not paying for EV battery materials plant. They're building a $50 million EBITDA battery materials plant in Texas. So they didn't announce who their customer is, but it's pretty darn close to the Gigafactory, right? And they can ship those products everywhere. So when we talk about paying a low multiple for something that can grow, yeah, a call option, that's great. But um, not all of them hit. But when they do hit, and Darling is an example of that it did hit, and the reason we made it our largest investment rather than just a good investment was as it was uh, hitting and it was clear to us, the market really wasn't recognizing it at all. And so we had a line of sight to free cash flow and numbers just inflecting in a massive way. And the street was asleep at the switch. And if you're doing small caps, you're going to make a lot of money that way over time. It just it takes a long time. We had a lot of years of sitting there and kind of talking about it and no one really cared. But but then when it works, it works. So uh, it's never linear, this business that we're in, but it sure is fun. I can tell you that. So, you know, like a, like a business, um, you know, Orion, right? Um, right now, it's uh, it seems impossible to own. Right, we've got a, a European recession. We've got natural gas problems over there. It's an industrial. You know, you're a hedge fund guy. You run long short. How do you know? How don't you know to short it? Right, like clearly you can't own a business like this. You know, is is kind of the pushback, right? But how do you stay long looking at a macro environment like this? And why why not trade tactically around an idea like this? Different stripes to work for different people. And look, we've got the timing wrong on this one. It hasn't yet worked. It should have worked coming out of Analyst Day. But yes, their their core facility, they have one, um, uh, their highest margin facilities in Cologne, Germany. It runs on natural gas. The week after Analyst Day, Russians turned off the taps on Nord Stream. So now we have EU energy security questions. On the On the call... Uh, the Q2 call, public uh, public uh, disclosed information, $50 million would be the hit to EBITDA next year if if the natural gas in, in Cologne, Germany uh, was reduced by 40%. Um, this business, the mid the midpoint of, of guidance this year is 325, but they have new facilities coming online in China this year, and, and they brought on a facility in, in Italy earlier this year. So we think even, we think the company can grow through a recession, even if that hit occurs in Germany. But the market is not parsing that nearly as, as specific as, as we're trying to do, right? So price would indicate that we're wrong, or at least we're not right. But when we look out a year, two years, we see the free cash flow. We know how high quality management is, exceptional management quality here. $6 million invested personally by Corning Painter. He was at Air Products for almost three decades uh, very, very difficult environment in terms of uh, um, you're not going to skate through and, and be an average manager there. You're not going to be there. And he was there his whole career and, until taking over Orion. So we see a situation where the headwinds are evident and obvious, and yet all the execution is going on. Free cash flow is on the come. So the timing, yeah, I don't think we got it exactly perfect. But we're very confident in the team, very confident in the profile and, and the necessary nature of their products. So and that's just an, an example of, you know, what works for us in, in, in small caps. Yeah, I think some of what I'm asking, too, is just like a general philosophy that, 
I see I have conflicting thoughts on this because on one hand, if price goes against you, I think uh, you know, probably uh you're wrong. And on the other now, and when I say you, I don't mean you. I mean just like a, a participant Reverb taking deal. it. Yeah, that's right. But now, now that prices are going against everybody, I wonder whether or not I'm thesis shifting. I wonder what what is going on. And everybody's, uh, it seems to me, macro watching right now, you know, staying long going into a global recession. I mean, I guess in the past, we've talked about the headaches associated with shorting. Um, you know, in this kind of environment, the, is it, are you really glad that you know how to short and that you have a short book or, uh, you know, how are you thinking about all that? Well, that's the difference in the macro and the micro, right? I mean, you look at some of these scions of value investing, uh, Munger had a number of 40% drawdowns per year, right? And can, can one handle that volatility? Probably. Can one build a business where you have multiple years now in, in this day and age? with multiple 40-year declines? Probably not, right? So if you're trying to do it for a living, there's a certain amount of, you You probably want to be in a private market, um, be really doing something esoteric, long only, public markets, or, or you want to be long short because there's periods in which you're just going to get overwhelmed with the water's either rising or the water's falling and you seem really dumb when the water's falling and really smart when the water's rising. And probably the reality is in the middle, right? And so for me, with my seminal, you know, I was in my mid-20s for 07 through 09, that was scarring, right? That was exogenous. And this, this wave just sort of washed over um, most who were long only. And so I said, okay, well, there's a mechanism here. Yeah, it's not quote unquote approved by the greats, right? You know, by Seth Klarman. He doesn't short, but his investor base is one of the most unique that's ever existed. And he can go into private markets, he can do real estate. And that, for me, from my background and where I was coming from, wasn't going to be the reality. So for me, realizing that I'll make the, the preponderance of our profits on the long side, short's about staying in the game. Obviously, given the public form, I can't quote statistics, but we're in year 11. So uh, let's just say that we've stayed in the game. Um, And and shorts are certainly a a big part of that. When I heard uh, Klarman talk, he spent a lot of time speaking about real estate and how he found inefficiencies in real estate. And I thought that that was pretty interesting because, you know, here I, here I listened to, I think I'm going to hear Seth Klarman talk about public investing and whatnot. And most of the discussion was private market inefficiencies in real estate. And uh, I thought that was, I had a takeaway from that. That was like, oh, okay, here's here's where he's focused. Well, one of the things, and I don't mean to throw rocks at my own industry, but one of the things that I've always found a little funny is that we report net returns. Sure, everyone, in my opinion, should report net. If you're reporting gross of fees, uh, we can have a different conversation about charlatans and things. But uh, not tax like are you you know what do you make after tax 20% short term is not the same as 20% long term in most people's tax code uh so it's sort of always driven me a little nutty that that's not the case and Clarman's got a lot of taxable money as i understand it so they care about that so real estate i mean the 1031 exchange is 
I mean, my goodness, if we had that in small caps, it would it would seem like an outrage, but it's just this vestige of what it is. And most people's largest investment is their home and, you know, white picket fence. That's the American way. And, you know, and away we go. But that's a vestige of the tax law and certainly something that I, I hope to take advantage of over the years. But but in my chosen asset class and small cap public equities, we you know, we don't get that. But but Klarman does, uh, I believe, a, a great job. I tell my investors, I'm like, look, I've been doing this. Now we're in our 11th year. I'm like, but if Klarman ever calls, you know, I'll be at Logan so fast, you know, you guys will be liquidating this on your own. So Yeah, there, there are certain calls that if they come in, uh, they trump the current career, right? Respectfully, love my team. I love Chicago. But uh, there's a lot of similarities between Boston and Chicago, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Boston's an incredible city, man. I was I was hanging out there uh, this summer. My cousin got married and I was like, this is awesome. It's Yeah, it's beautiful. I think there's something about, uh, you know, no offense to New York listeners, which is like 60% of you. I think there's something about like a, being a second city and also being cold that uh, I just, I think it, uh, I don't know, the people that come out of those places tend to, uh, I don't know, I like them. Not only have I chosen to do, you know, value and free cash flow in the public markets, but I'm originally a Californian living in Chicago. So how on earth did this happen? I must be a glutton for punishment with the cold. I had I had the warmth and I gave it up. So what are you going to I don't know. But then now now you got a family and now you're stuck, man. I don't know. I don't know. Everything's different now with COVID, right? I mean... I know some people who moved to Florida during COVID. Uh, I don't know. Would you know anyone? Some some say it's that? a good decision. <laughs> I th- I think uh, unless you need a towel guy, yeah. I unless you need a towel guy, yeah. That's no, yeah. I actually hit up the guy that used to install flooring for me, and I said, "Would you, you know, if I fly you down here, uh, if it makes sense, would you come down for <laughs> like a month or whatever it'll take?" I don't. I hope it doesn't take a month. Lord, I like the Florida thing. Uh, what? It, how real is this crime stuff in Chicago? It's pretty bad. That's what I was telling my buddy. I said, uh, he's like, I think it's all just, you know, kind of fear mongering. I said, dude, I know people that live there that are telling me that it's not good. It used to be in Chicago has a really, really nasty and we can get into it if you want his history of segregation and really nasty racial stuff from like way back. It's not that far back. It's like the 50s, right? I mean, they had segregated beaches not all that long ago. Okay, right. It's, it's a, based on a definition, and I, I think you lived in Chicago longer than I have. Did I um, really? But I, so I seventeen years what's that? is what I put in up there. Uh, oh, seven to twenty-two. Fifteen, 15 right. so far. Well, I got to yeah. recruit you so that I can have you beat down to Florida. Oh, I tell my wife about Florida all the time, but uh, we have family on the West Coast, so I don't know if that's uh, that's all right. You can hang out with uh, with Chad. Chad, I love Chad. Chad, I enjoyed that pod. Chad, I think, looks at the world in a really constructive way. Um, he, he ends up doing some higher quality names that I, I'm i like, what, what's that free cash flow? Is it missing a one in front of it? Uh, 5% free cash flow, but like uh, compounding names. And he's, yeah, we've, we, we have a lot of overlap and we talk frequently. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's a good friend. All right, let's finish this Chicago thing. Uh, I, my theory on what happened is uh, they've diverted a lot of the police to the areas that need policing, but without higher uh, funding for the police, they need to increase the aggregate police because I, I like, I mean, I was in Lincoln Park, man, the day, 
what it, we moved from Old Town to Lincoln Park, and like the week we moved in, a woman was robbed at, at gunpoint right outside my kitchen. Like a guy pointed a gun at her baby, and I was like, I thought I I left where I was at to get away from this. Yeah, look, we've thought about leaving because of it. We've had friends leave because of it. It used to be isolated, and and you know through twenty twenty and everything, uh, it's less isolated. It's scary. Um, but it's kind of everywhere, right? I mean, you had July 4th, the issue up in, up in the, yeah. the leafy, yeah. the green leafy suburbs. So it's, it's, it's hard to know what's the right thing to do. There are people, I got a good friend of mine from business school who's running for alderman. His name's Bill Conway. He's running for the new, uh, 34th district, I believe. I'm not as up to, as I should be, but he's running on, uh, pro people sort of, uh, Know, helping the cops type of a platform so the elections in a few months ah, good for him um, yeah but he was trying to get involved right he's he's a navy a naval reservist former investment banker former lawyer he's he's an interesting character but no he's he's digging into the city and he's trying to make things better right and i think you know we're we've been members of uh of a church for 15 years in the cabrini green district and and we as a church body have tried to dig into that neighborhood and, and try and use the, the church building um, as, as, a, as a launching pad for the community. Is it on Clybourne there? It's on, uh, yeah, well, Crosby, yeah. Huh. Yeah, I think I know the place. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. So, you know, we you know, do what we can. Um, as a person of faith, that's, you know, really um, integral to, to how I try and live my life, um, try and try and uh, leave the world a better place each day. I certainly don't always get it right, but, but I try. Right. And I think that's what we try and teach our kids. And, and, uh, you know, even in all this negativity and, and crime that there can be redemption. And that for me is, is really th- a, a faith-based. Um, but yeah, that's how we try and live our lives. That's cool, man. That's uh that's the kind of collective action we all need. So I hope your buddy is successful, and I hope that you guys are successful at what you're doing. It, it will uh, make the world a better place. Um, all right, back to investing. Something you just said. Chad focuses on higher quality, uh, like lower free cash flow stuff. Over your time as an investor, I go back and forth on this because I, I kind of think of uh, I, I think that stocks are a little bit hard to mentally get for a lot of people. So I, I think of it like real estate, right? Beachfront real estate, yeah. theoretically, would be the Heiko of the world, yep. right? And that has always, I've always seen that get, it always has accrued more and more value over time. And what I can't figure out is how much of my life experience is watching one big interest rate decline versus how much is like reality. And I, I have this idea that scarcity accrues value over time. So like a truly rare business like ASML, in theory, if that you know, if that's like a, if that's an accurate philosophy, should accrue value over time. But then you look at these studies, and it's like value as a factor outperforms over time. And I think when interest rates go up, people start to get religion about some of these things. How have you thought about those higher quality businesses versus like what you choose to traffic in, and, and why do you continue to traffic where you do? Well, you had on uh, a few weeks or a few months ago, you had on an investor who uh, more eloquently than I'm going to describe 
there's two ways to have above uh, above average returns. It's go super high quality and ride it out and be correct, or you're dumpster diving, you're, you're investing in businesses with high free cash flow, and you got to figure out your orientation, right? Like Chad, just not to make it about Chad, but Chad knows waste management like the back of his hand. He knows the growth trajectory. He sees it. He understands it in such a way that when I look at something like waste management and I say to myself, am I taking multiple risk on the back end? It's basically interest rates and multiples. You know, it's 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 shorthand, shorthand DCF for for are you taking a terminal risk? And to me, if I'm buying something at eight times and I'm going to sell it and it might be at six times, that's kind of stressful. It just doesn't work for me. That's just me as a natural person. It just doesn't work for me. So I want to buy something at a cheap multiple and then get the free cash flow and earnings inverting. And I'm looking for higher numbers and more secular correcting the narrative, secular growth in markets. And now that's going to be a higher multiple so I can make money on the numbers going up and the multiple going up. That's just how I'm wired, right? And I think it's so important, especially for your younger listeners, like there's a thousand ways to make money in the market. You have to find a a style that works for you, that's repeatable, you have a process. And then if you're building a business around it or you're joining a team, that that team and the orientation all matches up. Because I can't tell you how many times I've seen investors lose money um, because they sell at the wrong time, right? Because they don't have the fortitude they thought they did, or their clients don't have the fortitude that the client thought they did. The client was 100% earnest, gave money to a manager, told the manager to execute a strategy, but then something happens and away we go. The average uh, mutual fund investor dramatically underperforms the average mutual fund. And that's a real issue. And that's something that we've kind of always tried to be pretty heavy handed um, in our private communications with investors is, hey, look, here's the strategy. We're going to stick to the strategy. We're not going to deviate, but there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs, right? Unless you're Renaissance or Citadel, there's ups and downs in your strategy. And that's just the way it is. So um, you have to be emotionally ready to handle it. There's so many guys, guys and gals out there who can do uh, the investing, but don't have a stomach for it, right? You look at someone like a like a uh, Charlie Munger who can just stomach volatility like nothing. And and guess what? He's just genetically hardwired to be able to do that, right? And others can't do that. So I'm not wired like that. Like I, you know, I'm not wired like Munger. Therefore, I don't run a concentrated portfolio with a few stocks like he does. And that's just, we're just different people. Now, my returns aren't as good as Munger. And maybe uh, you'd have to stack up time periods and all that. But it just, I'm just using it as an example of, uh, finding a style that works for you and and sticking to it so when you get uh you know when when you're screening an idea or you're in the early stages like uh when i hear you talk what percentage of your ideas would you say off the top of your head are like cyclical ideas more than most more than more than the average investor yeah so you're you're looking at like where are we in the cycle and then where where do multiples normally trade? How do I normalize this? Like these are the types of questions that you're you're really focusing on. And then like how do we maybe get the juice of the sub industry? So yeah, we end up working on certainly some unique businesses. So so for example, let's uh cuz you talked about it with Orion and I enjoyed talking with you and a couple other people about it. Um, 
you know, and somebody said, boy, this, this is, has supposed to have been working for a long time. It was in Barron's in 2015 and whatever, like what, a what kind of does your, um, your checklist or your initial due diligence look for in Orion and, and where did your brain say, boy, I actually kind of like this idea. Yeah, no, look. Um, so we initially invested in Orion in 2019. It was on the back of uh, EU. EU, if you can remember back pre-COVID, seems like much longer ago than just three years, but it was only three years. Um, the EU uh, automobile industry had gone into a recession. Some of their Orion's proprietary gas black formulations are the highest product quality. Uh, why, why does a BMW sparkle? Like why? That's, that's carbon black. And it's probably made in Cologne, Germany by Orion at their gas black facility which they're uh, expanding at a 50% ROIC right, uh, right now. So small plug for gas black. We'll get into acetylene black later. Oh boy. Yeah. You'll have to, uh, you have to extend the tape if we start talking acetylene. Um, and we, we just looked at a business that I go to the Jeffries industrial conference every year. And every year I talked to Orion and Cabot, right. And it was kind of interesting, kind of cyclical, kind of seemed like a boring business, but Carbon black, yeah, it's a it's a chemical and it's an industrial, but it's its own market, right? A lot of it goes into replacement tires. Tires wear out, right? This is a, a business that you can understand. It's going to be around for a while. There's certainly there's there's issues we can get into them, but the point is like you kind of know what the business is, right? And that you can trade. You can trade long and short, right? Um, so we we initially bought it in in nineteen as the numbers were uh, geared to inflect. And guess what is not great for uh, a business in the transportation or tied to the transportation economy? I'm going to go with COVID. Everyone's sitting at home for a year. Yeah, so so that was fun. But the quality of management and the things that were going on inside the company in terms of improvement of, of culture, uh, incentivize uh, the team, to sell not on revenue, but on gross profit, it seems pretty obvious, right? Like why would, well, they, the sales guys and gals were just not incentivized to sell uh, thinking about gross profit as, as they were on just moving volume, right? That's what you do in a commodity company, you move volume. But Orion is the world's number one a leader in specialty products. They're the number three largest global manufacturer of of what we're calling commodity uh, rubber black. Um, and even in within rubber black, they are skewed to the high end uh, technical tires, heavier tires. Uh, you know, the cars are getting heavier, SUVs are getting more popular, et cetera. And that's before we get to EVs. EVs burn tires twice as fast as ice powered cars because they're heavier and they have far more torque. And the torque puts that, puts the uh, a lot of strain on on the tire, and carbon black is what mixes with the rubber to give the tire rigidity, um, and so they just wear out a lot faster. So Orion is perceived as as this um, sort of boring, unchanging, you know, industrial business when actually they're doing a lot in in these new formulations and specialty products before we even get to EV battery materials and acetylene black. The, the market's just missing. And so when you can buy it at a low price with a good management team, with an exceptional board, with an exceptional capital allocation, and it screens poorly because it has no free cash flow because of an investment cycle that they're exiting in early 2023, that's where we can come in and do the qualitative work, understand the products, understand 
why the market sees what the market does see, and yet still be confident in the future that we think has a has a very high probability of occurring. And that, for me, as a bit of a classic value investor, free cash flow focus investor, that's the kind of thing that we're that we're trying to focus on. And when are those numbers going to inflect? What's the magnitude? How do we get paid? And for us, we count it in free cash flow. Would the market say back to you, like, you know, you're underestimating the next investment cycle that's coming? Like, what's the what's the rebuttable presumption or the or the uh, sort of bear case, for lack of a better term, on why? Uh, like, why are you wrong here? Yeah. So, I look. The specialty business is certainly tied to uh, global GDP. Looks like it's going down. It sure as heck looks like like it's going down in the EU, where their their crown jewel is in Cologne, Germany. We did some. We went dug through the German subsidiary filings, and our guess is that a, it's about 120 million dollars of, of EBITDA. Now that's a pretty wide range. That's not. That's a Grizzly Rock mosaic number. That's not a public number that's been disclosed by the company. They don't disclose it, but it's 120 million dollars of EBITDA, give or take, on a 325, which is the mid uh, midpoint of uh, guidance this year. So it's really meaningful, right? And the EU is going to cycle, and specialty demand is going down. And they, like every industrial on the planet, has rising input costs. And how much can you pass through? You're going to pass through as much as you can. Are you going to pass through it? All of it, probably not, right? So you're going to have declining demand and you're going to have declining uh, margins for some of those products. Now, we think that we think on balance, the numbers are still going to be far higher because what we're seeing in rubber supply demand imbalance, the Western world is continuing to build tire plants. And yet there's been no carbon black added for the last 50 years, right? And then in, in the European area, 40% of the product was Ukrainian or Russian, right? And now we have this, this tragedy of this, of this terrible war, and it's throwing into question the production of those volumes. Just today I was reading that Russia is Russia's mobilizing into their army the entire like, energy, the, like entire energy companies are getting summons from the government to send their employees to the military. It's like, oh my gosh, like, what is going on? I think from Chicago, it's really hard to tell what's going on in 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 Russia and how much carbon black is going to be produced. But what you're seeing, and you're seeing this from public comments from, say, Cabot, is the largest rubber black manufacturer on the planet. You, you know, tire companies were coming to them three to four months earlier than ever before to talk about volumes for 2023. These are annual uh, contracted volumes. So you're talking about a situation where it's unprecedented demand. And so now you have all this demand from tire and industrial customers and only so much supply. And so what does that do to pricing? It's basic economics 101. The pricing is going to be there. And that's what Cabot and Orion have been saying publicly. And the stocks haven't gone anywhere, but but uh, but the economics make sense. And so kind of getting in front of that and kind of getting that eye into 23 and 24, that that's that's the type of work that we try to do. When you say uh, you know you dug into to the German subsidiary, I mean, what does that look like? Because people, you know, may I mean, I'll just personalize. It. I hear it, and it's like, okay, well, you know, what are you doing that's unique in that? And uh, and and how many people do you, in your career? Uh, what's your perception of the amount of people that are doing that level of work? Well, when you run fairly concentrated in small caps, you have the time to do it. And when you try and, and we don't really talk to the sell side, there's many that do exceptional work, 
but most of them are communicating something that the industry wants to get out or the, the management version. Our whole thesis is go find disconfirming information. Go find information that disconfirms that the management is, look, management CEOs are, you know, also the chief salesman of their own stock. Right. And a stock is a currency and a narrative and a story. That's all important. People are narrative creatures. I think I understand that more and more every year. I, I think I'm trying to teach my kids that because, you know, numbers are numbers, but but we, we as human beings are not linear in such a way. We're we're emotional creatures. We are prone to only understanding things in narrative and story. And that's why oral storytelling. It, it it sticks with you, right? And these cultures that have existed for thousands of years have this deep culture of, of oral storytelling because that's how you train teaching in parables is how you train the next generation in a way that will actually stick. So I'm taking that and I'm trying to trying to beat it into my own head on narrative, you know, going forward. But um, th- does that kind of answer the question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does, and I and you see it. I mean, you know, here I I said I hold cable like a like an idiot, um, but you know, I don't know. It's amazing to see how many people. Uh, look, there are certain people that have always been bearish cable. They're allowed to be bearish now. There are other people that are bearish because the price is going down, and uh, it's interesting to watch. You know, and I think uh, having the conviction to know, I guess, what this period has taught me is what names do I actually own and what do I actually know? And that's not to say that I'm correct on what I think I know. It's just uh, to say that I know what I'm looking for and when I'll exit. And it's like the, the names that I can actually own. Well, you're very modest, but you also know some of these industries absolutely cold, right? And you're right for the right reason, right? Uh, you may or may not want to talk about it, but I mean, there's things that you hold, I assume, that you you know you're right, or at least on the probabilistic spectrum, you know, your base case is wildly divergent than what the market's implying, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I guess in bull markets, you said it earlier, people look smarter than they are in bull markets. And uh, and right now, I probably look dumber than I am. And uh, some of it's just uh, repeating mantras to myself that says, get through to the other side. And a little bit of prayer sessions occasionally. Well, and focus on balance sheet matters, and you you know how to read a balance sheet exceptionally well. So, well, I I hope so. We'll see. Uh, and I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. Let's say I'm I'm going to make you sell yourself here because I know you're you're reticent too. But I I think it's a cool idea that you came up with. Let's say I have found an idea and I've done the the proper work, and uh, I want to figure out how to raise money. Where would I maybe go? to pitch somebody on whether or not they know how to raise money for a single idea. Yeah, that's called uh, putting the ball on the tee there. Thank <laughs> you, buddy. Well, I've watched you build it. I think it's really cool. This is this is a cool platform yeah. that, you're, that you're working on. Well, we, we built it for ourselves. So uh, what Bill's uh, uh, referring to is we built a platform called Covest Select. It's covestselect.com. The platform is for small cap public equities in, in an SPV form. The market for the institutional investor market is is highly fragmented and, and is always looking for something unique and with an edge. And we realized when, when we studied our numbers and, and not to get too far into the weeds, but, you know, when we were right for the right reason, with the right timing, that was what made everything go. 
And a lot of our time is just water under the bridge where you make some money, you don't make some money. But, you know, really exceptional ideas are rare. And most of the time, um, if, if you're running a PA or a fund, you're going to put it in at a certain percentage because we all have constituents, right? Even if you're running your own money, you have a constituent of a spouse or a family member or a child that, that, that cares, right? Very deeply about that. Money is emotional, right? So you go, you, you put that idea in at, at, the, at the right position size for you, and that's different for everyone. But for those of us who are doing this professionally, we, we, we max the position out in our fund. And then what do we do? We call our buddies who un- would understand it and tell them about it because they, they're the only ones that will listen to us talk for hours upon end. <laughs> and thank you for being on that list, Bill, who will just let me yammer on about some, you know, cyclical for carbon black company. Yes. It's very sexy. Let me tell you about this carbon black industry. It's kind of what I think is sexy about it, to be honest. There's not a ton of money rushing to get into it. I, I kind of like that. Yeah. So what we said is, hey, let's create a platform. Let's let's create a platform that can tell these stories at the right time and curate the right time for the right investor audience. Let's build this platform. But once the platform is up, let's use it for our team. But let's also use it for our friends. Let's let our friends use it. Let's let others use it who have an idea. When you have an idea and you're right for the right reason, it's the best feeling in the world. And then we said, there's a lot of managers who, who launched, like I launched right out of business school, right? I launched David Einhorn style. I had less than a million dollars and now we're SEC registered, right? So the growth has been something we worked very hard at, but it's still something that we work on as opposed to someone who can go at a, at a big shop and go to a center book and get something on at $100 million, it's a little bit easier. For, for a lot of managers, there's a lot of really smart managers that run $50 million, that run $100 million, or just launching or just, just coming out and creating their own businesses. Is there a platform to help them, to help them grow their businesses, get in front of institutional investors um, and, and grow their network? And by the way, grow a return, a return on that idea, right? Good ideas are a dime a dozen. Great ideas, exceptional ideas, those should be rewarded and those should be offered, we think, to the market as as an SPV. So it's a private fund offering. Can't talk about that too much. We're not talking, we're we're not looking for investors here. What we're saying is the platform exists that small cap managers working in concert with Grizzly Rock um, we're taking it out as covestselect.com. We have a full-time marketer. We have a full-time a series SPV that's already set up. We have SEC registered fund, admin, accountant, all, all of the things that you need. It took six months and hundreds of thousands of dollars to set up. Um, but now it's up and it exists. And we're looking to partner with like-minded um, folks and, 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 try and, and try and do well together. So, so how did you come up with this idea? I mean, I, I know uh, you just gave the, the background of it, but were you, is this something that like you wish that you had as a younger manager and you were, you were solving for a problem that you encountered? I don't think public companies were accepted as, a, as an SPV when I started. I think the, the institutional... The allocator community, there's so many opinions about that, but the allocator community has gotten significantly more sophisticated. Each year that I've been in the business, they're getting more and more sophisticated. Um, and there's a lot of folks who are now 
family offices or endowments or things who have sat in a seat and allocated capital, meaningful capital, and they know what they're doing and they know how to do it. And they're interacting with managers more on ideas than just writing a check and talking to the manager once a quarter, reading the letter. There's folks that are still doing that um, and they prefer to interact with folks like our team in that way. And and that's great. But there's folks that really want to roll up their sleeves, dive into the ideas, read all the diligence, read all the expert call transcripts, do their own, go through the model and really understand it. And those are sort of my favorite to talk to because that's what I love doing, right? I'm an investing nerd. My team, that's what we enjoy doing. Like I will do it for longer than Grizzly Rock will exist. I just, you know, uh, that's what I do. I enjoy it. And so we're going to keep doing it. And and creating this platform was a business opportunity to partner with folks, right? You know, you have a great idea, bring it. You know, uh, someone who I've been friends with for, for 10 years and, and chatted, you know, ideas thousands of times, they can use the platform too. It, it's not for everybody. You know, if you're at a bigger shop, you probably have your own market. You probably have your own co-investment vehicle. But But I built it because I was the other manager. Right. I went to other um, managers to try and get that scale and that leverage. And I, I didn't have the ability to spin it up in the time frame that I needed. I didn't have the ability to go to the right institutional uh, allocators. But we have a full time person uh, who's working on that, who's been doing it for multiple decades, who knows these folks and can get them on the line and explain to them, here's why you should pay attention to this idea for the right reasons at the right time. And, you know. It might, it may or may not work as a platform, but it's certainly unique, and uh, and and we think it has a lot of promise for the small cap community. Something that uh, I admire about you is your prowess as an entrepreneur. You know, you alluded to how small you were uh, when you started, and how you've grown your business, and how you've created uh, Coves Select. Did you grow up in an entrepreneurial household? Like, how did this all start? No, I did not grow up in an entrepreneurial household. I grew up as a student athlete. Um, I played baseball. Growing, I grew up in Southern California, so you can play baseball about 365 days a year there. So that was fun. That was kind of my my passion. I, I played in college, and towards the end of that career, I had this competitive drive, and I always put it into baseball and and academics. Like, okay, well, you get good grades, and then you go hit the ball. It's great life, right? But now, what do you do? There, you know, for for me, my career ended in college. And now what do you do? And, you know, you got to make your way in the world. And, and there's something you could go to do to be to be competitive. And my wife, I, I love my wife. It's, it's one of the best parts of my life is my relationship with her. We've been married 17 years and we describe each other lovingly as control enthusiasts. <laughs> we're not control freaks. We're control enthusiasts. I like that. And I just I just always had this burning desire to start to start a fund. And. I talked to a lot of folks who are considering it and I, I kind of try and talk people out of it because it's all encompassing. It's really, really hard to put in the hours um, and have a, a life. Like for instance, I don't golf, you know, like I wish I did. It's super fun, but I don't golf. Cause why? Cause I spent my thirties doing this and I don't regret it, but that's just a choice you make. So it's, it's, it's just a choice that I made and I had to scratch the itch and, and we're still going. But it's not for everybody. It's really, really hard. It's not just the investing. It's the business stuff. It's the it's the paperwork. It's the it's the marketing. It's the hours that go into it. 
So I think for most people, they're they're better off going going to a bigger shop and established shop and and really you know building their own career. And in the you know if you play my life a hundred times, I probably do that a whole whole bunch of times. But you know, thank you for your comments on the entrepreneurial front. But I don't necessarily consider myself a, a great entrepreneur. We we built a business that's still around. But we have more to go, right? And 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 now I think with Covest, you know, we're we're going in the thing that I that I know best: small cap um, investing. And yeah, I'm really excited for it, and hope to partner with a number of folks. And uh, you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll be doing an idea with you someday. Possibly, we'll see. Uh, I got I got to come up with one that's worthy of it. I'll come down. We'll do the diligence in January. You come up here in the summer. I could do that. Uh, when we, when we talked about doing this podcast, you said that we could do, uh, an hour on this. I don't think we need to do an hour, but do you want to drop some lessons for people starting a fund or things you wish you knew? It's so hard. It's so, you know, everybody tells you, okay, you got to get, you got to get three years of, of audited track record. Okay. Well you do that. And then they say, oh, but you're not big enough. And then you get bigger. And then they say, Oh, you know, it's just, it's just so hard. And I want to save people a lot of the, you know, pain and suffering. I I think, I think that using skills and working in a, as a collaborative team, is just far more easier to do than, than to be successful by yourself. Because when you start by yourself, you have to put up great numbers and market and keep the operations on the train and keep your sanity. Um, McMurtry talks about it more eloquently than than I. But the things that I've learned, you know, you, you partner with some people. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Right? There are there are. Uh, you know, is your asset class in favor? Not like I started a value fund right when value stopped working. Right, and it became a growth market. Well, there's folks on the beach now who started growth funds. Right. Maybe that yin is turning to yang here with, you know, ebb and flow of just how, how cyclical life is and, and certainly in the markets. Uh, I don't know. I, of course, as a value guy, I always want to see value come to shine. Your, your co-host on your other pod. Yes, they also want to see value come to shine. Value after hours. I love that, by the way. I'm, I listen to pretty much every episode. Well, thank you. Eat, eat, the, uh, eat the veggies with Jake and, and, and listen Jake's to Jake's veggies uh, this week were very good. I like a lot of his veggies, but I particularly like this week's. What I would ask Jake if I broke bread with him, I have not yet. I would like to. What I would ask him is, how on earth does he have the time to find these veggies every week? Like this, is like good every week. It's like I think at this stage he has uh, he has some uh, external sources that are helping him. There you go. Well, that's curation right there. Curation is the name of the game, right? Like, what's that? What's that line? Like, good artists borrow, great artists steal. That kind of thing, or what? I butchered it, but the premise. I'd be interested to see his inbox. I suspect he's got like a number yeah. of pitches on this. Yeah. And then Toby's voice, of course. So I'm I'm a big I'm a big fan. You've seen my value after hours shirt. My I bought my that shirt. And she's like, you bought a shirt from a value nerd podcast. I was like, yeah. She's like, you're only gonna wear it to the gym. I'm like, okay, that, that's fine. Well, we appreciate it. I think we sold nine, and two were to you. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes. But no, it's 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 wildly enjoyable for for someone like me. And so thank you for the content. I've paid you a grand total of zero dollars for that. So thank well, you for it's, uh, you know, it's been fun, man. It's, it's wild to see, like, 
we were out in uh in LA at that future proof conference and there were only like five people that listened to us because they put us up against Gunlock, which, you know, I'm not saying that we would have had like tons of people, but I am saying that there are better draws to have in the world than against Gunlock. Well, and in LA, that's his home turf. Yeah, that's right. And he was wearing yellow. Like you got to see him. I kind of wish that we could watch him, but the guys that did come were, uh, the guys from, uh, they're at Seawolf now. And it was, uh, uh, Vince, uh, I don't, I think it's Vince Daniels. I'm sorry if that's the wrong name, but, uh, and Porter Collins and Danny Moses. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just super cool. Uh, some of the inbounds that I get, I'm just like, how are these people listening to me? I mean, it's, it's guys that, uh, I used to read about or whatever. And, uh, it's, it's just been really nice. You bleed. I mean, you, you're vulnerable in a way that many, many are scared to be. And I think people saw that. And I, I think people, it strikes a nerve, right? This game can be so hard. Yeah. And, and life can yeah. be so hard too, right? So I think that's, uh, that's why I'm one of the nine t-shirt purchases. I appreciate it. I tell you what, man, these two years have been, or three years, whatever the hell we are, it's just been nuts. Uh, yeah. and, and I don't even know which way is up and which way is down sometimes. Like I try to stay data focused and then, you know, you hear things like the Fed say, basically, we're going to throw everything into a recession because we got to stop inflation. Yeah. And um, I, ju- I just don't know uh, how to manage what I see currently, what I believe is maybe coming. And then like how much, you know, separating uh, fear from reality and, and what reality may look like. And the other thing that I find really, really difficult about like reading these tea leaves is the Fed has a dual mandate, right? You've got inflation and employment. Well, you can talk really, really hard on inflation when employment's not cracking. So, like, how much of this is just peacocking and signaling? I mean, obviously, raising the rates is not peacocking or signaling. That's, that's like, real. But um, I don't know, man. I've, I've, never, uh, I've never seen anything like this, and uh, I don't pretend to know, you know a lot of history or whatever about it, but it's wild. Even though the Great Recession was only, what, 14, 15 years ago, these are vestiges, these are ripples and things because of how systemic that was and going to the zero lower bound and, you know, QE, QE1, twist, QE, infinity, all these, these things trace to 08. And so now we're trying to get off a lower bound. Our demographics aren't great, right? I mean, Europe's demographics are worse, but ours aren't great. And productivity, and there's just so much. Like, what is the neutral rate? Is there a neutral rate? Why 2% inflation? Like, the amount of debt the government has uh, is gargantuan. It will never be paid back. It has to be inflated away. And people don't want to talk about it like that, but it this functionally it does. Rates can't go high because the government can't afford it, and the government can't afford to pay it back. So unless we're just gonna print ourselves into, and I don't want to get in trouble with the MMT people, but uh, but that's it. Just it just lacks basic understanding. I had a buddy who was like, "We need to send people money." to help them like now that mortgages are higher they we need to help people afford their mortgage i was like that is is part of the issue that we're trying to to fight right now like 
I don't know, man. They're hard questions. I'm glad it's not my job to figure them all out. But investing through it is very difficult. One of the things that gives me comfort with cable is I don't think people are highly likely to switch, right? One of the things that uh, when I was diligencing Orion, uh, you know, which was nice, is business-to-business relationships are not uh, something that people switch out of a lot. Whimsical. It's not whimsical. Yeah, so that's what, that's what I've tried to focus on are these, these uh, relationships that endure and then let the rest of the chips fall where they may. Well, you have to decide what, you know, what your objectives are. You know, is your objective to have a positive absolute return? Is it to preserve purchasing power? Is it to beat the market? Is it to have fun? I think you really need to be honest. Each each entity needs to be honest with what they're doing and how they're doing it and what are the, the probabilistic spectrum of achieving that outcome or not, right? So it's so you turn on you know, the TV or open Bloomberg or whatever, and everyone's trying to make money. Okay, well, that's great. 60-40, well, what was 60-40 designed to do? Like, well, you know, keep people in the game and, you know, preserve some. And then 60-40 has the worst year on record because stocks go down and bonds go down because rates just went up by hundreds of percentage from from because they started at zero, right? So now you have a problem. Like, wh- what are you trying to do with the 60-40? There's so many things that are just implicit in when we wake up and start investing that we kind of forget to level set. Like, what's the goal? Like, what are we trying to do? And um, that's something that we try to, you know, talk about internally on our team. But but you can. it's easy to get worked up into it about this name or that name or Ryan or I went to this conference and learned this thing and Okay, well, all right, hang on. Why does that matter? Why, why does that matter? Does it matter? There's so much information. It's information overload. You know, you got to find a signal um, within the noise and just tune out all the noise. That's so hard. And, you know, on Twitter's the worst, right? Because now we're just sitting there, you know, calling each other dumb for thinking about cable for five years. <laughs> like, what does that accomplish? I don't, I'm not smart enough to do cable. So, I, you know, I'm glad that you're, you're focused on that. So you'll be my cable guy. I don't know that I am. If uh, if anyone can send me uh, information on what uh, what fixed wireless looks like at maturity and uh, what additional spectrum T-Mobile may need, uh, that's what I'm looking for. So that's my plea for help. There you go. The problem was Cable Cowboys was such an incredible book that like everyone wanted to go do it. And then all the smart, look, this is going to probably make a lot of people mad. Seems like the smartest people in the industry end up in TMT long short, right? Or at least they those people like to think they're the smartest, right? So it, it just becomes this halo around TMT. Um, hey, money's green. You make it a lot of different ways. So you got to find something that makes sense for you. Cable works for you, and I've done cable in a while, so... Yeah, media I find very difficult. The actual infrastructure. I, I think generally yeah. where I'm more comfortable is uh, hard assets, which is not a sexy thing. Yeah. But um, the way my mind works, it, I just find it, it, you know, it's interesting. When I was studying physics, uh, I was always really good in the earlier um, like physics levels. And then when you'd get into stuff like magnetic fields and stuff that was like hard to, like that I couldn't see. That's where my brain had problems. I'm pretty good in the tangible world. My brother's a computer science PhD, and I couldn't even read his textbooks by the time he's like a sophomore in college. Um, 
But yeah, his brain just works that way, right? Yeah. And mine doesn't. Yeah, that's right. So you got to find what works for you. Like just go go find your sweet spot and go do it, right? And Yeah. Yeah, and and uh and I th- I think what I'm learning more and more is uh defining what I don't know and what I what I'm not good at. It's uh it's really fine to just not have an opinion on things. Yes. Although being on Twitter they would they would tell you have to have an opinion on everything, but no, it's not true. I don't know. It's not true. I'll tell you what, that was one that I got wrong that I thought that I knew. But I I did pivot quick, so uh I got that going for me. But man, that I'm convinced that company is truly run by people that don't care about making money, which is really an odd thing to say. It it, it is. It is run by those people. It's it's I, I just I don't understand it. But whatever, I don't need to. There's plenty of other fish in the sea. As I get older, I'm trying to listen more intently. And when people tell you that they're about something, sometimes they're being brutally, bluntly honest, right? Um, and sometimes we don't we see what we want to see. It's so easy, right? Or we see a version of a version of colored by our own perception. So it's a lot of people like that's like the like like the Twitter. I don't. I don't I don't have a, an opinion, but on this on this Twitter, the, this um, legal you have a legal background, right? The uh, yeah, I mean, ish. I went to law school. I, I didn't like practice. I got you got a wife out of it. That's good. Yeah, that's yeah. No, no doubt. And she she's way smarter than me and does have a legal background. With with that stuff, um, I I feel fairly confident on the contract law side. I I would never. I'm just not confident enough to to assign any high probability of an outcome to a legal case because I just am somewhat aware of how wonky things can yeah. get. It's kind of like merger arb too. It's like merger arb is a great way to make money, but you gotta you gotta just be wired a certain way, right? It's just yeah. I I think if I if I wanted a merger arb allocation, I'd probably just like give it to Gabelli and be like, I'll pay the fees. You guys do your thing. Uh, I know that you're doing it, Gabelli. Uh, you want to talk about entrepreneurs within the the financial industry? He doesn't get the praise that he deserves. And I tell you what, I've been in random investment conferences, and he walks in. He, as a natural person, walks into some like seven thirty a.m. meeting with some small cap, and you're like, "This guy's been doing it for fifty years." Like, I don't, know, I don't know if I'll get. I'll be seven thirty a.m. meeting in fifty years. Maybe I hope so, but man, he is. He is intense in in the best possible yeah. way. One of my favorite parts of uh, the Berkshire meeting this year was I was just like talking to him and Bob Rabati. And, uh, you know, I don't know, just like five years ago, I never would have imagined that, you know, that would yeah. be me. Uh, and I'm just like, yeah. I, I don't know. It's wild, man. The The world is fun. Berkshire's crazy. I mean, you turn around and be like, oh, there's Bill Ackman just sitting at the bar having yeah. a beer. You're like, oh, cool. yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I uh, and it's all it always it always wigs me out when you got the board sitting all there and I'm looking around. It's like Gates and Buffett and all these folks. It's like this is like five of yes. you know some of the most influential people on the planet in one place at one time, right? Like who's the where's the designated survivor for the Berkshire board? Yes, I have the same fear, and then I usually leave the building at one, at noon, and I'm like, okay, good. Actually, I don't normally go. And then Pabri walks by 900 miles an hour and. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a fun weekend. I haven't been as much recently, but I, I need to get back into the Well, game. I hope they do another. Uh, the, the last one was quite fun. Um, we'll see where it all goes. I don't know. Somebody's got to pick up the slack. So uh, hopefully it'll be a number of people because um, I it's like it. It's you, Jake, and Toby. You already got it. Yeah, set. well, we'll see. I got, I, I, you know, I'm working on something. I don't know what it is yet, though, but we'll figure it out. I'm excited for what it's going to be. Well, dude, I appreciate you coming by and thank you yep. for, uh, you know, your imparting your wisdom. And, uh, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm hopeful, uh, I'm hopeful that we help spread the word on Coves Cause I think that's a really cool idea. And I think there's a lot of, uh, younger managers that could benefit from your experience yeah. and, and what it was like trying to put together, uh, an SPV and hopefully, uh, it's a win, win, win for everyone. Yeah, there's a lot of information on the website, and including on the business model and 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 you know cut of revenue to folks. So we're trying to grow people's businesses, ours included. Shameless plug, um, but we're trying to grow people's profiles and businesses and do it in a way that is profitable for everyone. So one plus one equals three. That's that's sort of the goal. And you know, the value community and 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 the investment community. There's so many sharp people, and and there's a lot less um, ego than than it would seem on Twitter. So, um, yeah, I have high hopes for our industry long-term. There's a lot of really good, talented, caring people and, um, and you're one of them. So thank you for, uh, for, 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 for letting me bend your ear. For well, I appreciate ear. it, man. And, uh, take care. We'll talk soon.